You cut your hair. I did, yes. I cut it uh, while I was on a cruise in December. Very nice. Because we had the baby coming, and my wife said that I looked like a dirty hippie. Uh, and I should stop that. So yeah. uh, I cut off all my hair on a cruise ship. Wow. Did the you do The cruise it ship bar? No, no. I went to the <laughs> salon. Very nice. I can't imagine how overpriced that was. I actually don't even know. <laughs> <laughs> I do know. I do remember the lady who cut it was like very surprised just because I don't think people normally drastically change their appearance while on vacation. <laughs> yeah. It's probably just like, you know, make me look fancy for dinner and not please cut off, you know, 10 inches of hair. Are you working on anything fun? Not really. Like, you know, I'm on parental leave for the next four and a half months. Nice. That's a decent leave. Yeah. We both took six months off. That's incredible. Because the the Canadian government um, gives you 52 weeks to split between the two parents, however you want. Oh, nice. At 55% of your pay up till a certain cap. And then Shopify tops us off to 85% of our salary. Oh, my God. Almost all of it. I think like 30-something weeks. I don't remember the exact amount. That's awesome. It's actually pretty normal outside of America is the sad thing. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Uh, At least the government, like the the government-assisted portion of it. Maybe not so much the company like topping that off a significant amount, but... Yeah. That's awesome. But yeah. So, you know, I've been working on on diesel a decent bit Mm -hmm. between feeding the baby. Most recently, we added MySQL support. Very cool. Was there a lot of like requests for SQL support or was that for something MySQL? you wanted to do? Yeah. So originally we were only ever going to support Postgres because mm-hmm. just like use Postgres. Yeah. <laughs> we eventually added SQLite support uh-huh. because Rust is a systems language and an embedded database right. makes a lot of sense mm-hmm. as a use case for an ORM in a, in, in a systems language. And since somebody had a valid use case that was something other than I prefer this database or my company makes me use this database. I was very like, yeah, okay, that makes sense. And the third or fourth time it came up, we added SQLite support, which took a while because it's a lot harder to go. Like MySQL support required almost no code other than the code that was just like for MySQL. It didn't require changing the rest of the library too much. Yeah. Adding SQLite support required changing the rest of the library quite a bit because we went from supporting one to supporting greater than one, which is always the hardest. Yeah. And then SQLite was also interesting because it enabled us to have really interesting use cases on Android and iOS. Mm-hmm. And that led to like, have you used Rails much for like database migrations? Nope. I'm assuming you've used, I don't remember the name of the class, but whatever the heck you used to manage SQLite database schemas on Android. SQLite Helper. <laughs> yeah, the one where you implement the like migrate, I'm a, is it called up or migrate but basically it gives you the current version and the target version yeah. and then it's like figure it out yourself yep so one of the things that rails does is you generate these migrations mm-hmm. through a command line tool and they're versioned just with timestamps mm-hmm. and then there's a cli command that you just run and it figures out it basically just diffs all of the migrations between oh that's awesome uh it, it's not necessarily always a straight roll forward because it's, it's possible for like there to be you know, migration one, two, three, and four, and you've run one and three locally, but you yeah. never ran two because branches. Right. And so it'll then run two followed by four. And the assumption being that it's more likely, and that part of why we use timestamps for the versions in Rails is just because the theory that it's more likely that your migrations are just going to be like 
unrelated from different branches than yeah. they are to actually conflict with each other. Mm-hmm. And so Diesel has a similar uh, migration infrastructure. But then once we added SQLite support and once people started using it for mobile, it was like, oh, hey, you don't always have control over the file system. Yeah. So you can't necessarily always rely on, like, run this function and then it goes and looks in this directory for these files right. and does all this stuff. So we added, a, like, a thing that embeds all of your migrations in the actual binary so that we have a single uh, dialib that you can load from Java and then have all of that. That's awesome. Anyway, so then MySQL support was... MySQL was always just sort of a thing that was, like, the only real use case for it was I don't want to use Postgres because right. either I have opinions about databases that sean disagrees with right. or um or my company makes me or we have a legacy schema yeah i know those were too compelling but just enough people asked that i eventually caved yeah so we had my sql support in this most recent release that's very cool is it going to be easier now in the future to add other i don't know any other database managers but like would it be easier now to hypothetically add infinite amount mm-hmm very cool. Yeah, MySQL, so there was actually, I lied when I said no changes were required to the yeah. library. There was one change, um, which was that I assumed that everything that transmitted over the network used network endian. Mm-hmm. MySQL does not. It uses little endian. Got it. Uh, so I changed that so that the back end can say I transmit numer- integers as little or big endian. Yeah. That was the only library level change that was required, though. Everything else was just like, you know, we have this interface, provide yeah. an implementation of that interface for MySQL. It's very, it, it's very JDBC-like, mm-hmm. other than just being much more type safe very cool and then the most recent hell from this week was uh turning on app there for the repo which i've been meaning to do just forever i have no idea what that is either that is a windows ci system i got it it got to the point where i was getting eventually somebody helped me figure out that i was getting the windows equivalent of a segmentation fault okay because it was really funky because my program was just exiting with error test failed, which yeah. is always the last output of the test binary right. when a unit test fails. Yeah. But normally it says which unit test failed. Right. But it wasn't telling me that. Interesting. But it was at least saying error test failed. So it wasn't just immediately aborting the process. Yeah. And it had a negative exit code, which yeah. seemed really weird. And eventually somebody helped me figure out that, like, if you change that to an unsigned integer and then convert that to hex, it was C000005, oh. which is an access error code in Windows. Got it. But that still didn't help at all. So yeah. I spent about 10 hours remote desktoping in oh to a uh, app bearer node, yeah. like, just trying random stuff. And then every hour having it terminate my session and having <laughs> to restart everything from scratch. Oh. That's and I found real. that the fi- finally I found that my sequel is writing a four to freed memory. That'll do it. <laughs> and that was the problem. <laughs> but hey, you learned. I learned. Yeah. I learned that the only thing worse than my sequel to database is my sequel to C API, <laughs> which I already knew. But th- this just reinforced that. Yep. <laughs> That's really funny. How about you? How's Android? Uh, Android's good. Same old, same old. I'm still writing in Kotlin, which is really nice. Nice. Um, but I was going to ask some more questions about open source since uh, Mike Burns, who's a developer here at ThoughtBot, um, just attended a conference for other open source contributors. And I guess after the conference had ended, it was here in San Francisco, he came into lunch um, and we had a bunch of really interesting conversations about the kind of things they all talked about, what the big problems are. Wait, wait, wait. wait. Did, did Mike Burns move to San Francisco? No, no, no. He was just in town for this conference. Okay. <laughs> um, and so it was a really interesting to hear about what kind of all these major open source contributors 
what their pain points were, what they all could agree on was terrible. Um, the conference, it seemed like, was also organized kind of as like an open source repo. Um, everything was documented in a repository. Um, I guess everyone opened issues and then that's how sessions were picked um, based on like popularity, which of that was very meta of them. Yeah. But it's interesting because um, I've open sourced the library since I've been here and I'm now very deep in the just managing it kind of phase of its life. And getting sure. feature requests. And it's not something that I work on every day by any stretch. And it's like how to politely let people know, like, I'm really sorry that you, that your manager doesn't want to let you use this one class. But, like, I'm not going to change my whole library because of it. Right. I had someone open an issue uh, because the pseudocode that we use in the readme was not complete. It wasn't code. Um, which I thought was a safe expectation, <laughs> but I'm guessing someone went to copy and paste it and they were like, this, all the syntax is wrong. Like, fix it now. It's like, okay. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I, there is benefit, not necessarily from like copy pasteability, right. but there is benefit from, um, fully syntactically valid and executable examples yes. simply just because you can run those as part of your unit tests yep. and ensuring that your examples in the readme are still valid is, yep. is, is, is a useful thing. No, but. for sure. Also, yeah, that person probably shouldn't be copy-pasting. Yeah, there's also an entire there. sample app with sample unit tests in addition to the Perfect. library test. So I was kind of like, it just like look a little deeper and it's all right there. Um, right. But I, I understand. I mean, at least on, on your first statement, though, props for at the very least being at the point of just because this doesn't work for your exact feature request doesn't mean that your feature request is valid. Yeah. Or necessary. Yeah. Because I think that's the hardest part about open source is saying no. Yeah. No, absolutely. And finding a reason to other than I don't want to. Because I think a lot of open right. source starts from like, I have a problem. Let me see if I can solve it and hopefully help other people. So you do it and you solve your problem. And then six months goes by and you're like, oh, my God, I don't care about this problem anymore. But there's this thing out in the wild. Right. So. I mean, I, I think usually a good way to resolve that is just to ask them to clarify and explore further. Yep. Which... Oftentimes, this has the side effect of, like, making them go away, which yep. is kind of also fine sometimes. Yeah. But, like, it's hard to express. And, it, like, saying it bluntly can kind of come off as rude. Right. But ultimately, if somebody opens a pull request to a library, it's yep. their job to convince you that their problem is worth solving. Absolutely. And also that their solution is the best solution to that problem. Yep. And I think that if somebody opens a pull request that doesn't do both of those things asking just asking you know not necessarily phrasing it in the way i just did but yep. but asking like hey so i'm not sure i fully understand the use case this is trying to solve can you better demonstrate to me like why this problem exists in a more general context yeah do you think this affects other users or or is it a very niche thing have yeah. you explored other alternative solutions why is this solution the best yep i think that all works very well in the ideal i think the reality ends up being a lot more People opening issues that are like half questioned, like they haven't really looked through the library to see if that library answers it, you know, or if it's not, yep. there isn't a method named exactly what they think it is. It's like, does this, you know, does this library do this? It's like, it's open sourced. You can see it, but also like understanding that like that's not, you know. It, that's always going to happen. Yeah. I mean, the biggest thing you can do there is just provide a channel that isn't GitHub issues. Yep. Because the, the, the big thing with GitHub issues as the primary help channel is mm -hmm. that oftentimes you're the only one who's watching that. Yep. So having an official IRC room or Gitter room where you are active in answering them yeah. because just ultimately that's part of open source, right? right. If people have questions, they, they're, yep. they're going to need answers. And it's also valuable feedback, right? Yeah. If the method wasn't named exactly what they thought it was right. it was supposed to be and a lot of people think it's supposed to be named something else. Yep. 
<laughs> but you know, eventually, like like one of the things with diesel that's been that's been pretty heartening lately is like I'll wake up in the morning, I'll check the getter room, and a few people ask questions, and somebody else already answered all of them yep. for me. Perfect, amazing. <laughs> And that, you know, that takes time, but yeah. like that happens, but that's more likely to happen when the forum isn't GitHub issues. Right. And then depending on the project, like with Rails, just because it's so pervasive mm-hmm. that it just needs to stop, I will always, no matter what, even if it's a trivial question to answer, I will always immediately close the issue with, this is not the right place to ask for help. Here are the right places to ask for help. Yeah. With Diesel, I'm a little bit more lenient. I'll be mm-hmm. like, depending on how, if the question is something that like, takes a while to answer or right. not, I'll either close it and say something similar or yeah. I'll be like, here's the answer to your question. But also in the future, you should ask here where people who aren't me are more likely to also help answer these questions. Yeah, I do think there's definitely, um, because of the way GitHub issues are structured, I think it de- it doesn't encourage other people who might have the answer to answer them. It definitely seems like right. I'm asking you, the author, contributor, or writer, a question and you're the only one who I want to hear from. But I think that something happens when libraries get bigger that other people start answering or adding on to the question that doesn't happen on smaller scale libraries. And I I wonder if like it's the kind of thing where if issues were structured differently or if you know GitHub provided a different tool, which I, I think at some point that kind of gets out of scope, but some other if way GitHub to provided Stack Overflow. Right, exactly. It was some other like kind of hybrid way for people to have that conversation and to feel encouraged to participate would be most excellent. I do agree that separating them would help because I think part of the reason that people that that you find fewer not you people responding to the issues that are question format is mm-hmm. a it's hard to separate questions from legit bug reports right and the people who are interested in answering questions aren't necessarily interested in helping fix bugs yep but then also to find out when new questions are asked right you have to watch the repo and if you're yep. watching the repo though then you're also going to get notified for pull requests and bug reports which yep. if you're a person who's only interested <laughs> yeah. in answering questions might not be a thing to you yeah hi not github too. friends hi yeah. katrina <laughs> please fix um speaking of github did you notice that they changed the bar at the top to be black oh every Every, and especially all of the my friends who have GitHub Enterprise accounts were yeah. freaking out about it because that's what the like GitHub Enterprise has always been black. Yep. So that you know if you're on your right. Enterprise GitHub or on proper GitHub, and now they have no idea. Well, there's an option to change the Enterprise GitHub color to white. Ooh. So I think Whoa. everybody I know is just just backwards. I just wish GitHub had like had a blog post when they did that. That was yeah. just like. You have not been opted to, into a beta. Yeah. This is just a design change. It's fine. And then everybody <laughs> could have stopped freaking out. Yeah, everything is going to be okay. Um, one of the designers here in the SF office made a Chrome extension making it white again. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just love how much people freaked out about it because yeah. it just happened and nobody said anything. Yeah. And like people had a visceral reaction to it. Oh, people not, did not, not bad, have But just like nobody knew what was going on. And we all, everybody assumed that the, col- that the color changing meant something was going on. And then Stack Overflow also updated their like header banner to now like be persistent while you scroll. So oh. web is just losing it. Everything is changing. Everything's changing. Yeah. I mean, that always happens. <laughs> yeah. Also on mobile. All, nah, and in not technology. As, not as general. fast on mobile. Okay. You know, speaking of mobile and web. Yes. So one of these trends that's been really irking me and that, like, Google seems to be encouraging because uh-huh. they keep on making WebView better. Yes. Which is annoying because it means that people are using Action Open less. Yes. Right? And it's just they have a link and yep. they open it in a WebView. Yep. And then A, like, Twitter in particular and yep. Reddit are the two apps in particular that really grind my gears because they're the ones that I most want to multitask with. 
Twitter, you can, there's a setting in the Twitter app to open the is link. Is there a setting now? The, there's, yeah, or at least there was. Um, there is a setting to open links not in the app and in Chrome. Because I remember they made this change like a year or two ago, and I remember complaining. Yeah, there's a setting. I will look for it later. I'm not going to look for it right now. <laughs> but yeah, I used to do that. That's really helpful for me, at least on Twitter. It was like, okay, I want to read this, but I'm in the middle. I want to get through the rest of the feed first. And so I would just you know, right. keep hitting links, and that's perfect. Right, you know, I click the link and then I click the menu and then open right. in Chrome. But then yeah. it's also annoying because oftentimes the link to uh, a URL that I have a native app for. Right. And then you and just And I would like to going. open in the native app. Yep. Although, granted, actually, if it's something that I want to have multiple tabs open and it's not an app that has, like, a stack type deal for it, then I have the same multitasking problem. But aside yes. from that... Yeah. Everybody who uses web views for anything yep. that involves user generated links should s- just seriously needs and always use action open yep. setting. I agree. I totally agree. I think there are cases for native web views. Um, at Venmo, we used web views for things that we wanted to be able to change very regularly and not have to worry about like uh, releasing to both platforms. Um, so I think it was a totally native web view. It was not something you could even access yourself on the web. So it was just basically kind of pre-React Native, that was our solution to having code that you could change out really easily natively, but also on the web. Right. Um, so I think those solutions are great. I generally find that like, because they are improving their performance, but for a long time, it was like, you knew that it wasn't native and you're like, why is it all of a sudden slow and crappy? But they are improving that. But yeah, I agree. Other than that, there's really no reason for it. I was on the programming committee for RailsConf this year. Mm-hmm. And one thing that I did notice just on the like, I can't believe it's not native yep. subject. Uh, it seems like Rails developers are getting a lot more interested in, in mobile just because we got, I don't remember how many we actually accepted, but we got a lot of proposals that were talking about the pros and cons of mobile web versus a hybrid app versus wow. a full, a pure native app hitting a, a pure JSON API. Yeah. It was a higher number than, than I've seen in the past in terms of proposals. So that yeah. was That's awesome. Interesting. Yeah. I think there's definitely, I think the community at large, and I think the managers and business folks are definitely kind of getting to a place where it's not economical. And from an engineering perspective, it doesn't make a ton of sense that if you wanted to build an app, I always think about Netflix as an example, the number of platforms that they want to release to, if you had to have one developer for each of those platforms, then each of those developers would have to start from scratch and you wouldn't be able to share any issues or troubles they ran into, especially at, you know, at a company that large. If the iOS engineer is like, oh, this turned out to be really difficult, the Android engineer would have no way of knowing unless you know they did an amazing job of communication. And so I think the web is a really attractive solution to that problem because of it works everywhere, or you know, at least it has historically. I, as a native yeah. developer, have issues with this, but I do think there is a problem and it needs to be solved. I think this is just the most available solution right now. I mean, I, I kind of like, are you familiar with the approach that Inbox took? No. So one of the things that they did, because they have a, a ton of business logic. Yeah. But they just, they're just they just built on top of the Gmail API. Oh, oh, they, they used um, J to Objective-C, didn't they? Yeah. yeah. And then also another thing that, that, that translates it to JavaScript. Yeah. And so all of their business logic, all yeah. of their non-UI code is yeah. written in Java right. and is fully shared between their apps. Yeah. And then all of the UI code is just written in yeah. whatever native yeah. whatever, which I don't necessarily like the code generation approach right. because it's too easy to get out of sync. Mm-hmm. 
I'm sure the listeners will be surprised to hear me pitch Rust for this, but I think <laughs> a language like Rust, which or, or any other language that can easily link to other languages, yep. Go actually probably makes a lot of sense yeah. in certain contexts as well, but but yeah. just having the business logic shared yep. in a language that it, basically my point being in a language that isn't JavaScript, right? Yeah, because my my issue with, the, with, with the types. using the web is yeah, yeah, yeah. It doesn't even have to have types, <laughs> but just a little more sane. Yeah, no, I agree. I imagine um, that's probably what Apple was thinking when they came out with Swift that it could be that kind of thing. In theory, I mean, in theory, it definitely could. There's no reason you couldn't compile some Swift code and load it from an Android app. Yep, people have already done it. I think that those solutions are way more attractive to me. I think the problem is that it relies heavily on people, major corporations like Apple and Google, getting on board with some sort of one of these languages and, you know, migrating over. I don't even know that's that. I think it just it just requires somebody in the community for one of these languages that basically any compiled language that emits a dwarf yeah. object that can be loaded from Android easily. Yeah. Um. If it, and if it can be loaded from Android easily, it can be loaded from from anything iOS easily. <laughs> yeah. Presumably. Um. But you know, any compiled language, right? I think it just it really yeah. just requires somebody from one of those communities making an effort to make it easy and ergonomic. Yeah. To do that interaction from every mobile platform. Yeah. I don't know that necessarily requires like a blessing from the ecosystems themselves. I didn't mean more a blessing. I meant more like, I think that the problem is with mobile platforms specifically that what they are providing is an abstraction on top of a language. And so it would be much nicer if that abstraction could be applied to other languages or abstracted maybe like even further so that it could become slightly more language agnostic. Um, Because I think the issue right now when you were seeing this, or at least I'm seeing this with React Native, um, is that you have an Android app, which eventually the code is all being compiled down via the JVM to bytecode. But React Native is an abstraction of JavaScript, and Android is an abstraction over just kind of standard Java. And so when you keep adding layers, it gets really complicated, and debugging sometimes can be super impossible. So something has to give and become more flexible because right now it's all too like tightly coupled with itself and how it wants to work. Right. The big distinction that I guess I, I, I try to make here is I don't want UI code to be cross-platform. Yeah. No, I agree. And then business logic, like it's just calling functions. Yep. Right. You don't need, you don't need the complex. Right. It's not even complex. It's just it's more ceremony to yeah. load a compiled library from, from the JVM than yep. it is. I actually have no clue how it is from Swift. Objective C, it was nothing because right. it was a C library as far as you as far as you were concerned. Yeah. Yes, it's hard to debug if something goes wrong because debugging compiled code, if you're not familiar with it, is yeah. hard. And again, I think that one in particular for mobile is just a matter of somebody in the ecosystem taking the time to make it to better. solve those problems and make it better. Yeah, I think the other issue is that like for on mobile apps specifically, it's not there isn't as clear of a separation between UI and business logic. You know what I mean? Because right. there's also like the idea of like, is your application running or not? And like, right. where do we put that kind of stuff? And so I think that's where it gets tricky and you're still relying on a framework to help you with life cycles and things of that nature. Well, and a lot of applications, like I think I've talked to you about Cigar Finder in the, in, in yeah. the past. The business logic for that was absurdly simple. Right. It, was, it was 90% UI code. And I think that a lot of mobile apps fall into that category yeah and this isn't even talking about games which are in their own weird category of like what the hell even is business or ui right yeah like is 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 physics business logic or ui code (laughs) million dollar question (laughs) um that's interesting i'm excited that's happening that more people are getting interested it's definitely 
fascinating being a native developer at this time, I feel, because part of me is like, I don't know that native development as it is today will exist in 10 years. I think it's going to be something more hybrid, but I don't want to learn JavaScript. So like, right. what I do I you. do? <laughs> so it's been interesting to try and kind of hedge your bets, but also be honest with about like what I enjoy about programming and what are the minimum requirements for a language that I'd like to learn. No, I mean, I think that's an interesting because, you know, the only real analogy I think we can draw from historically is uh, native non-mobile apps. Mm -hmm. I don't want to say desktop apps because that's the wrong term, but right. I actually don't know what the right general term is for computers that aren't phones. Yeah, I don't. I, that are either a laptop or a desktop. <laughs> desktop app, I guess. Yeah. Sure. But, you know. Yeah. Windows won, but yet it didn't. Yeah. And it's certainly not like everybody's writing. Well, certainly it can seem like, depending on your circles, that everybody's just writing Electron apps, which is the embed, the node, in yep. and the web in a native app. Mm -hmm. But, you know, yeah. C Sharp's incredibly popular. People yep. are writing native OS X apps. And then people are also writing native Linux apps. Yeah. They tend to not be so much on the GUI side, or yeah. if they are, their GUIs are of very questionable quality most of the time, but yeah. they also exist. Yeah. It's just interesting to hear that you don't know that, mo like, I'm assuming when you say you don't know that native mobile won't be around in 10 years, that you think it'll go to, like, mobile web or some sort of centralized... Something, yeah. It's too discreet right now, and I think it kind of has to come back together a little bit. I mean, it's, it's two, though. Yeah, but... You know, we're ignoring Windows Phone here, right, right? Yeah, I guess. But I think that 2 is just for mobile. And then I think when you add, again, Netflix is my example, you know, then you would need an Apple TV app. You need a, what is the Amazon one called? I have no clue. And then the, Google has the Fire one. something? Yeah, the Fire Stick. And then there's the Chrome Circle thing that you plug in and dangles from the TV. I mean, yeah, I think that's more of a problem for everybody but mobile, though. Yeah. Mobile's a lot more fundamental. Like, there's a lot more justification for writing a native Android app and a native iOS app yeah. for every TV. Like, yeah, TV needs to centralize. Right. Definitely, I think most apps should consider if they can just go hybrid web yep. to start. No, for sure. Though there's still value in then switching to a native mobile app afterwards. Mm hmm We used a travel service for like a year and a half called Pana. Yep, we use Pana. Okay. So I always felt like a second class citizen with them because my only interaction with them was via email. Yep. And they had a native iOS app that seemed really slick that I never got to try. Yeah. And then they, uh, shortly after I canceled my account, apparently added a web UI, which looks like it does everything that the iOS app does. Yep. But it's just like, that seems like the much more reasonable target for MVP. Yeah. Um, and I think that React Native is the mobile web just one inch farther, where it is really native. But when you're writing it, you get to write JavaScript, which for you know us here at ThoughtBot is awesome because it means that our designers can do what they normally do, which is write UI code and you know implement their own designs, which is a problem for us on native because they don't know you know native design languages so that's nice i guess i never thought of it from that point of view yeah I, i've always heard of like the and you can share code your ui code between platforms which for me is always just like don't do that though that's yeah i don't think it would be a secret to anyone here that i do not care for react native um i think it's good at what it does kind of i don't think it's great at it but i think it's the first solution out there really which i commend facebook for i think that's awesome and it's been fun to try it out i think it's again 
definitely a solution. Um, I just, it's the first one and I don't think it's the best possible. Glowing review. Yeah. It's a solution. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I will, I will openly admit I've never used React Native. Yeah. My knowledge of it is roughly just it's React. Yep. It compiles to native code. Yep. Sounds like it more or less does what's on the tin. Yep. And I remember that Shopify went really all in on React Native and then eight months later, I completely abandoned it. And I don't know why other than just everybody who worked on mobile and the company was like React Native was a huge mistake. Yeah, it's interesting. The nice thing is, you know, for these MVP apps where you just want to kind of get something out to market, I think it's a very nice option because you can do it quickly. You don't need as many developers and designers. Um, so I think that makes a lot of sense. I think where it stops making sense is when you really want to build out a product, a custom product to either integrate with other apps or just as your own kind of standalone. And then you do want to be using native things. You know, in React, there's, they have a wrapper around list view, which like, there are things about ListView that are like intentionally optimized for memory and scrolling performance and all the stuff. And as much as like you can try to get that right to rebuild it all, you'd be doing just that. You'd be rebuilding it all, which is right. not necessary. My issue is also with versioning. They're not great at it, at least documenting it. And so if you ever have a, like an issue, Googling it is impossible because people are like, what, what, what do you version mean when you mean you versioning? Want? You mean like versioning your app or like how they document changes between versions of React Native? How they document changes of React Native okay. versions. Um, it's very confusing. Um, they break things a lot of the time. As a native developer, I'm not accustomed to having like a whole local Rails or web environment set up on my machine. So for me, mm -hmm. if there's a bug, I see it on GitHub. There is changes to some code somewhere and very little of it has to do with my own personal environment. Whereas with React Native and I imagine with other web projects, a lot of it can be based on just your local environment and like what version of everything you're using. And there's so right. many dependencies with React Native. It's unbelievable to me. And as a native mobile developer, you're kind of in this mindset of like, eh, I don't really want to use dependencies because it'll grow my <laughs> app size or, you know. Are you sure it's not because Maven is terrible? Yeah, there is that too. But, you know, so you definitely have this like it becomes not okay to use dependencies. And so when you jump into React Native and people are like, oh, here's 17 dependencies, download them all. And oh, by the way, the versions are going to conflict and it'll take you an hour to figure out which ones it is. Right. So I'm just like, no, thank you. All right, let's take a uh, break for a moment and talk about this week's sponsor, FreshBooks. So you're racing against the clock to wrap up three projects, prepping for a meeting later in the afternoon, all while trying to tackle a mountain of paperwork. Welcome to life as a freelancer. Challenging? Yes. But our friends at FreshBooks believe the rewards are so worth it. The working world has changed. With the growth of the internet, there's never been more opportunities for the self-employed. To meet this need, FreshBooks is excited to announce the launch of an all-new version of their cloud accounting software. It's been redesigned from the ground up and custom-built for exactly the way you work. Get ready for the simplest way to be more productive, organized, and most importantly, get paid quickly. The all-new FreshBooks is not only ridiculously easy to use, it's also packed full of powerful features. Create and send professional-looking invoices in less than 30 seconds. Set up online payments with just a couple of clicks and get paid up to four days faster. And you can see when your client has seen your invoice and put an end to the guessing games. FreshBooks is offering a 30-day unrestricted free trial to all of our Bike Shed listeners. To claim it, just go to freshbooks.com slash bike and enter the bike shed all uppercase three separate words in the how did you hear about us section. Thank you so much to FreshBooks for sponsoring the podcast. So do you think that 
I'm trying to remember what was the name of the thing that was big before React Native that Microsoft ended up buying out. Oh, something with the C sharp one. Uh, yeah, yeah. I don't remember that one. <laughs> Whatever that one was called. And or now there, React there was... Native. I mean, there were a few. There were yeah. three big ones I remember back in those days. Yep. I don't remember the names of any of them, but no, they existed. Yeah. And one of them got bought by um by Microsoft, and it's still around, and I just don't remember the name of it. Yeah. Anyway, do you think that if because save save bookmark to home screen exists. Mm-hmm. Do you think that if Apple and Google allowed you to publish save bookmark to home screen in the app stores, that these would have gotten nearly as big as they did? Because, you know, you, you can just, there's save bookmark to home screen. Like, you go to a yeah. web page, and the web page, like, is for all intents and purposes a native app yeah. other than, right. pu- well, actually, push notifications are a thing for, for the web now. Yeah. But even ignoring that, right? It was basically yeah. just couldn't interact with various system UIs mm-hmm. or system APIs, but, like, for things that were pull only, yeah. it's a native app, right? And they're save bookmark to home screen, but it's always felt like a second class citizen. Yeah. But what if you could just have your web app and then put it on Play Store or yeah. the App Store, but it was literally just save bookmark to home screen, but your user didn't feel like it was a second class citizen that way? Do you think then that React Native and app whatever would have gotten nearly as big if that were an option? Um, I mean, for Android, it basically already is for any web app. Um, I don't- is it? Yeah, you can save anything to the home screen. Well, no, I know, I, I know, but the point being, right, that I, th- I, I think a lot of people went to a native app, even if that native app was literally, because there also used to be the pattern before. I think Google banned it, even didn't they, where your app was literally just a web view. Oh, I didn't realize. I don't know if they banned it. That used know. to be that used to be a big thing, like whenever iOS four was, yeah. <laughs> and I was still working in marketing. Yeah, uh, I remember that was a big thing. And I feel like I recall hearing of Google just like actually banning it, and oh, probably wow. Apple as well. Of like, yeah. if your app is literally just a web view, you can't do that anymore. Yeah. I remember a lot of people did that because even though save bookmark to home screen was a thing, right. users didn't know it was a thing. Right, and it's also just not where like if you wanted Twitter. Not, yeah, I mean Twitter probably needs a native app just because push notifications and tighter integration there. But yeah. ignoring that, right? Yeah. If it was literally just, I wanted to browse my tweets, yep. there's absolutely no reason Twitter needs a native app. No. Yeah, I agree. Um, yeah, I don't know why native became the like de facto way for companies to get like their products on people's phone. I think there's a lot of examples of apps that don't need to exist. I think in the like female world of things, there are all these apps that are basically just calendars. They help you book appointments with a service. And like right. to download your app, to book an appointment... That's like insanely annoying to me because then also I don't get Chrome autofill. So I don't get like any of the features that I'd like if you just left it as a website. So I think there was this like companies believe like, oh, we need an app. So on our ad or on our marketing, whatever, we can say we have an app. And I think that it had less, much less to do with the actual user experience and a lot more to do with being able to include a link to the Play Store and the App Store on their marketing sites. You forgot the part where you go to their their mobile web page, which actually has more functionality than their native app, but like it's impossible to use because every time you do anything, the huge pop up blocks your entire screen yep. saying, Open this page in our native app. Yep. I actually think GitHub does it the best in terms of like, here's our mobile app, but if you want to use the desktop one, here's a very easy like link to click it. Yep. And then when you're on the desktop one, it has that semi non intrusive like obvious easy to find easy to click yep. when you're done with your mobile your mobile website doesn't do this thing that i need but i need this thing right now yep. you know the it takes up like what a probably an eighth of your screen yeah. the go back to mobile version because their mobile version is great yeah. for the like 65 yep. percent of their functionality that it covers yeah no it's true yeah 
Um, having said that, I have tweeted in the past about um, a native GitHub app, so I feel I should just clarify. Um, I think that if I could review a pull request, if there was an app that was just designed for that, that would be awesome because that's really hard to mm. do on mobile right now on GitHub. Sure. But that's my only, that's the only thing I would want the app to do. I agree only because I just remember leaving comments that were like, I'm on mobile, but line X of this file is wrong. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, no, I agree. I'm not, I don't know why. I mean, I'm happy people did. That's why I have a job. But um, <laughs> I don't know why. It seems very silly to me. Have you heard that you can like pre-register for apps on it, uh, on the Play Store now? What do you think of that? I haven't heard that. So like, uh, you've heard of uh, Super Mario Run, right? Yes. So I don't, actually don't know of any apps that are doing this other than the two Nintendo apps. Mm-hmm. Because they also announced Fire Emblem for mobile. Okay. And um, back in, I think it was January... They both showed up on the Play Store mm-hmm. with this magic link that was like pre-register. And it was literally just send me a push notification when this app is available. Oh, I have seen that for other apps. I mean, I assumed it was for other apps as well. Yeah, but yeah like, no, I've seen that for other apps. I remember Super Mario Run was just one of the bigger ones because right. like Nintendo completely shit on Android as a platform during their uh, yeah. <laughs> during their uh, latest uh, keynote, keynote yeah. thingy. But then shockingly a month later, oh, we're coming to Android very, very soon. Yep. Yeah, I mean, I I think stuff like that's awesome. I've always kind of felt things like on iTunes, you can pre-order a movie or pre-order an album before it's released, which I think has always been so silly because the reason you used to pre-order in the real physical world was because supply was limited. Right. if it's a digital content, what are we talking about? Why would I pre-order a movie? And you're only pre-ordering it so you get a push notification. Well, and then this is becoming a big thing in the gaming world because now game developers are like, and if you pre-order our game, we give you this powerful item for pre-ordering. Yeah, it's like, it's very silly. But I do think like as a user, um, I downloaded a, um, I'm really into Top Chef. And so I bought the entire season on iTunes. And I will say it's very nice because I have no idea when it airs. I have absolutely Mm -hmm. no idea. And I'm sure I could find out some way or set up some calendar event, whatever, but iTunes sends me an email every time there's an episode available. And that is worth the $30 for the season's pass in my mind. <laughs> I get to watch it without commercials and I get notified when there's a new episode. That's all I need. I mean, they could also just offer that functionality without charging money, though. They could, but they're very smart and they don't. So <laughs> right. Fair enough. Um, but I think that people like getting notifications about and like pre-ordering. and. Oh, yeah. No, my favorite app, by the way. Space fans out there. So my, my only real hobby is space. Okay. Like, Did you just, see NASA's announcement today? I saw that they delayed the birthing of the dragon, but I'm guessing that's not what you're referring to. That is to. not what I'm referring to. Uh, NASA had a massive press conference today. They announced that they have identified seven Earth-like planets orbiting a nearby star. Wait, how near? Uh, it's still 400 light years away. So Or 40. That's no, 40. better than... Yeah. 40 is pretty close, but there was yeah, a live press conference today. It was really... Like, kind of really fascinating. Um, but seven planets is huge and Earth-like, which is very exciting. Yeah, no, that is that is very huge. Yeah. I have not, no, I have not seen that. We can link to the Google uh, or the YouTube video of the announcement in the show notes. Yeah, yeah, we'll anyone's. link to that. I'm, I'm going to stop reading this now because that's going <laughs> to occupy all of my time for an hour after we, after we end this. But no, like, I'm, I'm very interested in, in, in more of the, the, like, physics and mechanics of orbiting Earth and... Yep. 
traveling within our solar system and that sort of thing. It's a weird hobby, but I'm it's a thing I'm very, very into. So I especially like watching real rockets launch <laughs> and like having the actual telemetry and yeah. then like graphing it and being like, yay, those numbers match right. up. Uh, so I have, I have an app. It's called Space Flight Now. Space Fan, Space Flight Now. It's on, a, it's on the Play Store. It's great. Oh, nice. It literally, all it does just whenever a rocket's launching, sends me a push notification. It's like, here's where you can watch a live stream. Perfect. And I have developed very strong opinions about which countries have the best live streams of of their rocket launches, yeah. which I would not have even known that these various countries did these live yep. streams, except for this app. Yeah. The Skim, which is a daily newsletter, um, I think it was founded with the idea of, you know, for women, by women. They have an iOS app. And at first, I was like, why? It's a, it used to be just, it started out just an email that you got in your inbox every morning. And it was like, here's what's happening in the world today. And you can read this all on the toilet. Like, it was not complicated. It wasn't like a whole newspaper, because that obviously exists. It was like, here's a very simple email. And then they released an app. And I remember thinking this, what? why? Why do I need this? I'm not going to open the app. You already sent me an email. But what they do is basically just link to your calendar and they put all the like world events in the calendar for you everything from like the oscars to elections to the last day to register for the new york city marathon i think it might be location that one is particularly location based but all the calendar events have information and links to like more information about it they're all emojis so your calendar (laughs) looks really cool but totally stupid but absolutely worth downloading because i now like you know, for other random events that you not might not pay attention to, but the whole world like comes to the office and like, hey, the Oscars were this weekend. I'm like, I knew that. I knew that was coming. <laughs> I think my favorite push notification only app. It actually did more stuff than push notifications, I think, but I only know it for yeah. push notifications. Was the uh, what to expect app, which just every week <laughs> sends push notification. Your baby is the size of this fruit. Oh my god. Every week. It was yep. like, our baby's now the size of a spaghetti squash. Did you find, so there was a New York Times article, this is going to possibly get a little dark, but there was a New York Times article, um, I think a few months ago, about someone who had downloaded that app and then unfortunately suffered a miscarriage. But because when you sign up for that app, I guess you also get marketing materials and you'll get other stuff in the mail. And so like while she had like notified the app of her situation the rest of the world and like where they were sending her information right. had not been notified. So like when the due date came around, like she got a gift package and like this weird stuff. And it was all about like how to handle having a baby on the internet that you didn't really have. And I imagine that that's something that's not yet been figured out. No, <laughs> I mean the internet thought we were pregnant about two years before we were actually pregnant. Uh, when we fir- basically when we first started talking about getting pregnant right. and we looked up diapers or something on yeah. Amazon and then when you look up something on Amazon, it's th- forever. that gets leaked to literally everything. Yep. And so we, we've been getting baby stuff for years, yeah. but not the not the terrible miscarriage yep. story because that's very sad. Yeah. But the talking about marketing and yeah. babies thing, since you do Android, yes. I have a very funny story from yesterday. Okay. So a person who works at Google, because mm-hmm. I send out my tweet like, Ruby wants onesies, send Ruby onesies. And so people <laughs> have been sending me various onesies. Oh, that's very sweet. We got we got onesie we got a onesie from Google. By the way, if you're listening, it's cool. <laughs> Don't worry about it. I just think it's funny. Uh, apparently, the company they use for their onesies like sends everything via UPS. Uh-huh. UPS charges a fee to take things across the border for you. I see. So it comes and uh, Tessa's like, "Hey, did you order anything that's cash on delivery?" <laughs> I like, no. What is it? You can't and, know. Uh, 
and I'm looking at it, it's like it's 20 bucks. I'm like, oh, that's probably like customs fees or something. And Tess had to get her phone replaced or something, so I thought maybe it was related to that or or, or something. Yeah. The, it was like the labels like X marketing department from Pennsylvania or some you know nothing yeah. identifiable. Anyway, so we signed for it. We paid the 20 bucks, whatever it comes in. I'm like, this box is awfully light. <laughs> I open it. It's the Google onesie. Amazing. <laughs> The custom fees for it were two dollars, and then UPS charged eighteen dollars to take it across the border for you, oh. and then also charged tax on that. Jesus, and I'm sure the cost of the onesie did not justify that. No, yeah. I mean I'm sure the onesie was like what four dollars. Yeah. you know, maybe. But a she has bit. it. She has it. No, it's it's a very nice onesie. Yeah. I'm glad we have it. Yeah, I, I just think it's funny. That is really funny. I didn't like, even think you know, about I'm, that. I mean, certainly the person who sent it like did not intend for that to happen. Right. Yeah. But it's just like it's the gift that keeps on giving and taking a little. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's actually great because Google has become my favorite company from a baby point of view because everybody has, like, a lot of companies have onesies right. as swag. They have six-month-old onesies. Is that, what size is normal? Six-month, I oh, guess, is oh, normal. Oh, so but, like, it. babies exist for more than, yeah. like, that. I guess that's probably, they, they do that because that's the age where it's, like, yeah. companies think to send a yeah. swag package. Right. Right. But it's like, I remember this person was like, hey, I hear you want onesies. Would you like a Google onesie? I'm like, yeah. And then their next question was, oh, cool. So we have these colors and sizes. And the sizes range from newborn to two years. Amazing. I'm like, you're the only person who has yeah. a size other than six months. Because we have so many six-month onesies. Yep. By the way, listeners, if you were thinking of sending more onesies <laughs> and it's only six months, don't let this discourage you. When she's six months old, I will treat pictures of my baby in your onesie. Yep. I've always thought it was interesting about baby sizing that it's all based on age because like some babies are larger and smaller. I guess that like it's the more politically correct way to describe your baby because if you had to just be like how many inches is your baby might people might get offended or. It's not even that you don't really measure your baby yeah. inches like age is the only measurement that you're likely to have. Yeah. And babies actually are roughly similar sized, And, and it's not like yeah. it's, a, it's right when I say six month, it's not actually a six month right. onesie. It's a three to six month onesie. Got it. Okay. That's interesting. You put your baby in where yeah. they fit in. Like, what, <laughs> yeah, you switch to the next size up because they stopped fitting in the previous yeah. size. But they will almost certainly be born at newborn sized onesie huh. or smaller. That's so crazy. Humans. Yeah. Tiny humans are interesting. Yeah. Are you enjoying it? It being a father, not it being your daughter. <laughs> <laughs> it's fine it's honestly like right now she eats and then she goes to sleep yep and then she poops it's a dream oh yeah <laughs> you know i figure it'll be a lot more of a thing in like six months to a year yeah when she starts to get a little closer to talking and like she doesn't even smile yet oh yeah especially because she was born six months premature so like her muscles were all really underdeveloped Got so it. uh she was actually only supposed to be born Six days ago. Oh, wow. So her gestational age yeah. is, is one week, like yeah. one week old. Got it. So there's more time. 41 weeks old, I guess. Yeah. But it's been a thing. I am, I am glad, like, I always feel a little bit disappointed because occasionally I'll go, you know, I'll go look at like somebody's like, oh, we're hiring and I'll just go read the job post because I'm like yeah, curious what that company yeah. is like. And they'll be like, oh, and we have a really, really great maternity leave package. Like, we offer we offer two or three months of full pay. And yeah. it's like, that's really progressive for the U.S. Yep. And it's like, and we offer two weeks for dad. Yeah, it's just not the same. I haven't been the greatest at, like, everything with baby stuff, especially just because some stuff with diesel kind of jumped out at me from nowhere. Uh -huh. But, like, I still couldn't imagine. My wife and I sleep in shifts right now. Yeah. And I could not imagine her, like, me actually just being full time back at work. Right. Yeah, it's insane. And it's and it's been six weeks. Yeah. 
a number of weeks that are well beyond actually most companies' maternity leave yeah. policy in the United States, much less yeah. paternity leave. I think the problem with maternity leave is that I think it originated as a medical leave, which is why the time period was so short. It was like if you were going to go out and have surgery, it was the same like in the paperwork form and what column they filled in. It was just a right. medical leave, which is why parental leave was never a thing for so long. And then the rest of the world was like... That's not how babies work. It's not just a medical issue, like especially parents who adopt or use surrogates like right. I am just as you know, they are just as much a parent as anybody else. And so we're definitely not there yet. But well, that's why especially just like not to go too far down this road. Mm -hmm. But when people raise like, oh, we don't want to hire X because because, hey, if they just get hired and then have a child like that's a less useful employee yeah. to us. It's just like, I'm sorry that the that the biological imperative right. of the human race is inconvenient <laughs> to you. But hey, people need to reproduce yep. and we need to make sure our babies don't die. Yep. So maybe don't be a dick about it. I think that should be your policy. <laughs> yeah, I would love to see a company describe it that way. <laughs> We foster and encourage your biological imperative to reproduce. <laughs> Applications welcome. Uh, it's just like, it really, it, it shouldn't be like on the government to provide unemployment insurance to cover parental leave, yeah. especially because just that's always going to cover, at least in tech, yeah. that's always going to cover significantly less than your actual salary and therefore likely cost of living yeah. it approximates. Mm -hmm. So, I don't know, it's just sad to me that, like, we can't just rely on companies to be decent human beings when it comes to letting people take an, a reasonable amount of time off to adjust to their yeah. new life as a parent and make sure that their child is okay before putting it in a daycare yeah. of questionable quality yeah. every day. No, it's terrifying. RailsConf has daycare, though. I'm sure that'll be great. Ooh, that's awesome. That's definitely one of those things when I first got started, I remember... I went to a Write Speak Code conference, or the conference is called Write Speak Code, and it was something that they like promoted very early on. And I remember that was my first conference I ever attended, and I was like, I hadn't even, I was, you know, a kid, so like I hadn't even thought about, I don't have kids, I was myself a child. I was like, oh, daycare is sure. for me. But I hadn't even thought about that kind of, what would you do, especially when conferences go over on the weekends? It's like, maybe you have, like, you know, daycare Monday through Friday, but if a conference rolls onto a Saturday... I mean, I don't, it's... Um, well, and you almost certainly don't have daycare in the town that you don't live right. in. Right. That's the other thing, yeah. I don't know if they're doing it this year, but I remember they were talking about doing last year, was um, also providing daycare in the evenings. Oh. Because that's the other right. thing, is that if you're just going to a conference, right. you can probably, if you really needed to, you could find a daycare yeah. for the day, right. like during the conference, but then there's also... A party at night or something. The events that yeah. happen in the evenings, where like... Like, I'm, I'm actually probably going to have just the baby in a Bjorn because I'm emceeing my track. And she's going to have a little train conductor outfit. Amazing. And then I got the t-shirt design for the conference. I'm getting a onesie made. Amazing. You know, I got a baby called yeah. Ruby. We're going to RailsConf. She's going to go be the celebrity Ruby baby. That's amazing. So she'll probably just be in a Bjorn yeah. the majority of the conference. That's to hilarious. Be, to be perfectly honest. But, like, I'm not wearing my baby in a Bjorn at a ball. No. That's not advised. So I hope they actually do that. If not... I know somebody offered to watch her at least one night. My mom's actually talking about <laughs> flying to the conference oh and God. watching the baby for us. Because it's in Phoenix. We're from Albuquerque. Close enough, yeah. Uh, so it's it's an hour flight. Yeah. Well, I definitely want to see pictures of that. So what do you think? Should we wrap up? Yeah. Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm slash 101. As always, ratings and reviews on iTunes are greatly appreciated. If you have feedback on this episode or any other episode, you can email us at hosts at bikeshed.fm. You can tweet us at underscore bike shed 
or you can leave a comment on the show notes. Thank you so much, and we'll see you next time on Bike Shed.